Turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 7. John chapter 7. In your Bible, the end of John chapter 7 may actually be listed at the beginning of John chapter 8. It's listed as John seven fifty three, and we'll read through John eight eleven. John seven fifty three. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. They said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women, so what do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some chance, some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Well, we have over the past months been looking at John 6 and 7, and now beginning in John 8, to examine 12 reasons to be joyful. And we, uh, over a number of weeks, we defined Christian joy with three simple words. It is confidence in providence. Confidence in providence that we have a solid, firm, steadfast, peaceful trust in the workings and the overall uh, plan of God. And these reasons for joy are all based solely on the character, the deity, the perfections, the glory of Christ, who is our ultimate source of joy. And my thesis has been that true joy isn't found so much in just trying to be joyful or trying to do things to attain to Christian joy. But ultimately, our greatest and deepest joy is found very simply in the person of Jesus Christ. He's not just a means to joy. He is the source of joy. And in this journey, which we're going to conclude today, we've seen 12 reasons to be joyful. We remember Christ's kindness. We remember his protection, his generosity, his promise, his humanity, his payment, his word, his humiliation, his credentials, his heroics, his longing. And today, we remember Christ's graciousness, Christ's graciousness. Now, how is it that simply putting the person of Christ under our spiritual microscope, so to speak, to examine his character in detail, how does that provide joy? I don't think it's really that complicated. When I first met this young lady named Sylvia, I got to know her, but I didn't know her all that well. And when she would walk into a room, it was pleasant and it was nice. Plus, she's pretty and I like that part. and That was nice. But now when she walks into the room, she carries with her all of the memories, all of the joys, all of the suffering, all the shared experiences that we have over 32 years. And so she brings with her all of this When you think on Christ, when you think on all the knowledge of who he is, his kindness, protection, generosity, promises, humanity, payment, word, his humiliation, his credentials, his heroics, his longing, and his graciousness, this is practically Jesus Christ walking into the room with you every time you ponder him, every time you think on him. That's the source of joy is understanding and experiencing the presence of Christ because you know him so well. If you don't know him well, he doesn't provide much for you. But if you know him well, oh, he brings joy and contentment every time your mind wanders to Christ. So we come to a text today which beautifully illustrates the graciousness of Christ. But we have to decide what to do with this particular text. It's not an easy issue, so I need a few minutes to work through this briefly, but it is a point of interest to you. This is, ironically, one of the most remembered and one of the most frequently preached passages in John. In fact, it contains a saying that we still use today in many contexts, let him who is without sin throw the first stone. We say that all the time. But you'll notice that in most of your Bibles, our passage either is bracketed or double bracketed with a footnote that says something to the effect that some manuscripts, meaning ancient Greek New Testament manuscripts, some manuscripts do not include these verses. And so you get to this text and you get a little bit shaky. It's like, 
driving the car and the steering wheel comes off. I don't know what to do at this moment. Different Bible versions handle it differently. The, the Textus Receptus, which is the, the Greek text used for the original King James Version, it does include this passage, but the Textus Receptus is based on the Greek manuscripts known in the 15th century. There have been many, many more and much older manuscripts discovered since then that gives us our most up-to-date, pinpoint accurate translations we have today. The Holman Christian Standard Bible, it brackets the text with a footnote. The ESV that I preach from double brackets it with a note right there in the text. The earliest manuscripts do not include these verses. The New American Standard 1995 update brackets the section with a footnote. The New International Version inserts a note and some printings put the whole section in italics so that you know that it should be offset. Now the authenticity of John 7.53 through John 8.11 is about tied with the, the battle for the authenticity of Mark 16.9 through 20, and which is they're, they're tied for the most disputed passages in the New Testament. Now, when we went through Mark, we saw that Mark 16.9 through 20 is almost certainly not part of the inspired text of Scripture. But what about this passage? Well, scholars and commentators have a wide variety of views on the text. On one end of the spectrum, as, as one seasoned scholar wrote, quote, this little story captures magnificently both the gracious, forgiving spirit of Jesus and his firm call to the transformation of life. I consider this text to be divinely inspired and fully authoritative for life. On the other end of the spectrum, some commentators skip right from verse 52 to chapter 8, verse 12, without so much as a mention. They don't say anything about it. And then everything in between. And so it does bear examination for us. There's two reasons we ought to look at this. First of all, many, many scholars who would otherwise completely agree that every other part of the approximately 31,000 verses in Scripture is theopneustos, is God-breathed. They suddenly come to blows and fistfights when it comes to these 12 verses. So there's something here to look at. The second reason for us to understand this, though, unlike Mark 16, 9 through 20, it doesn't contain original ideas that that are nowhere else in Scripture. It's all plausible when compared with Scripture, and it doesn't give any contradictions, and it's all theologically accurate. Mark 16, 9 through 20 just has crazy stuff in it. It's very obvious. So there are some reasons to include this text as inspired scripture, but they're really kind of weak reasons and they pale in comparison to the reasons not to include it. So for the sake of time, I'm just going to go ahead and tip my hand and and give you some reasons against including this text as inspired scripture. You notice when I read it, I wasn't really that excited about it because I don't think it's inspired scripture. So let me give you some internal evidence. First of all, this passage completely disrupts the flow of thought at the Feast of Tabernacles with Jesus there. Look at verses 37 and 38. 37 and 38. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And this is followed by the section that we looked at last time with the reactions of people, but Jesus is still ostensibly preaching while the people are reacting. He's still preaching. Now skip to verse 12 of chapter 8. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That makes much more sense. And the Pharisees, what had they just said? Chapter 7, verse 52. They, the Pharisees, replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Skip right now to verse 12 of chapter 8. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. What is he referring to? He's referring to the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9 that says Messiah will be the light of the world who comes from Galilee. And so there's a clear connection from verse 52 right to verse 12. Another internal evidence against including the text as inspired scripture, the text is, is homeless. It's a homeless text. Most translations traditionally place the text right here where it is in your Bible, but it's been placed in many Greek manuscripts, some after John 7.36, after 7.44, some all the way at the end of John in chapter 21, verse 40, or 25, and some 
probably the most accurate ones actually put it in a whole different book in the Gospel of Luke after chapter 21, verse 38. So the text is very homeless. People can't agree where it goes. There's another internal evidence. The style of these 12 verses is very suspect. In chapter 8, verse 3, we see the scribes and the Pharisees together. And you say, well, what's the big deal about that? That happens all the time. Yes, it does. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it never happens in John. This is the only time they're seen together in John. The passage also references the Mount of Olives, which is done multiple times in the other Gospels. John never refers to the Mount of Olives. It contains a number of phrases and Greek constructions that are never found in John, but are frequent in the other Gospels. And in these 12 verses, there are 14 Greek words that John never uses anywhere else in his Gospel. So the style is suspect. But that's just the internal evidence. The external evidence is probably even stronger. The major Greek texts of importance, such as the the earlier forms of the Syriac and Coptic manuscripts, Old Latin, Old Georgian, the Armenian manuscripts, not Armenian, the Armenian manuscripts, the Armenian ones would be all wrong anyway. The Armenian manuscripts, they omit the passage completely. And these are important early manuscripts for us. The manuscripts that do include this text have a much higher than normal rate of variations in the text. Uh, In other words, there's a lot more errors anyway in those texts. And many of those manuscripts do the same thing our English Bibles do. They mark it off with brackets. How many church fathers in the early church wrote commentary on these 12 verses? None. It took 1,200 years for a major church figure to write a commentary on the passage. And even that commentary acknowledged that it is uh, likely that the most accurate Greek texts don't contain the passage. Um, Augustine in the 4th century thought that the scribes and the copyists may have omitted the passage because it was very, very lenient on adultery. But that would make it uh, the only known instance of this wholesale omission of a scripture text um, based on the opinion of copyists. And by the way, it doesn't even make sense because if you read John chapter 4, Jesus seems to be even more lenient on the Samaritan woman. So what do we do with this? My conclusion is that this should not be considered a part of the inspired text of scripture. I remember in seminary preaching lab, one day we were discussing the authenticity of this text and the instructor gave his opinion. This is not inspired scripture. And one of my classmates joked, he said, oh no, my life verse is in that text. You know, oh, all this time I've been relying on that. So this is not meant to, to uh, shake your confidence in scripture. We are confident in scripture, but this isn't scripture. So the question is, why is it still in your Bibles and why would we even consider this text and why are we going to look at it today? Well, even among those who dispute the authenticity of the story as scripture, there is pretty broad agreement. As one writer said that it is, quote, an authentic fragment of apostolic tradition, meaning it really happened. D.A. Carson writes, quote, there is little reason for doubting that the event here described occurred. Even if it's written form did it did not in the beginning belong to the canonical books dr macarthur writes quote this passage was most likely not part of the original text of john's gospel yet it describes an actual historical event from christ's life he goes on to say that the church should be grateful that god preserved this story even though it's not a part of scripture dr merrill tinney just a, just a huge figure in in the the uh, field of textual criticism He writes of this story's, quote, ancient character and undoubtedly historical truthfulness. Dr. Leon Morris writes, throughout the history of the church, it has been held that whoever wrote it, this little story is authentic. And so, no, we don't consider it a part of Scripture, but it almost certainly happened, and it may be the best and the only accurate extra-biblical story of Jesus that we have. Let me give you an example. We know from 1 and 2 Corinthians that Paul wrote four letters to the church at Corinth. Two of them are inspired. We don't have the other two, but if we did, do you think we would have a big bonfire and say, we must burn this, it is heresy? Probably not. We would probably read it with interest, understanding this is not an inspired text, but the apostle Paul probably between one letter and the other didn't suddenly become a heretic. And so we would reasonably want to read it. 
Let me give you another reason to consider this text. It, it contains no doctrine and no application that contradicts Scripture, and it contains principles that are all verified multiple times in Scripture. And it gives us a very accurate picture of a loving, kind, forgiving Savior who connects forgiveness with repentance. It's completely consistent with New Testament teaching. Another reason we would consider this passage, the early church fathers didn't write commentary on the passage, but many of them gave support for its authenticity. Uh, Jerome, Ambrose, uh, Augustine. So it was likely a true story that had circulated from the day of the apostles and made its way into the Western church tradition much more than the Eastern church tradition. Eventually it was written down and somebody started sticking it in some of the Greek manuscripts. Another reason to consider this, a guy by the name of Papias refers to a story identical to this one with the exception that it wasn't just one sin of the woman, it was multiple sins, but it's an identical sin and he said this actually happened. Now, why is Papias important? Because Papias was born before the Apostle Paul died. He was very early in the church. There's no absolute certainty that the story was added later. We cannot prove that it was added later, even though it looks like it, but there's no certainty. So based on that doubt, we can observe the text at least as an illustration an illustration which gives accurate conclusions about the person of Christ and gives a very correct soteriology. So in wrestling with whether to just skip this or not and have you wondering why we're skipping part of the Bible, um, we're going to look at it. However, there's so many variations to this text in, in the Greek manuscripts that we can't really use as detailed a grammar and the syntax as we might with other texts, but we can use it as an illustration of some concepts and we'll confirm all of these concepts as being found elsewhere in Scripture. So I would like to use this text as an illustration and illustrate three gracious acts of Christ. Three gracious acts of Christ that help you have joy based in his love, based in his benevolence, based in his his kindness. The first gracious act of Christ, Christ condescends to your life. He condescends to your life. Now, I mentioned this earlier, but it's it's more, more than likely that This event occurs during the Passion Week, at the end of the time uh, of Christ's ministry, right before he would be crucified. It makes a lot more sense to put it there. Everyone went to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Listen to the similarity to another passage. Here we are in verse 53. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Now, listen to Luke 21, beginning in verse 37. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged at the mount called Olivet, Mount of Olives. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. If this text was going to be put anywhere, that's probably where it ought to go. It makes more sense in the Passion Week. Now, it may have been that Jesus was camping out on the Mount of Olives, or he could have been staying in the little town of Bethany with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. That was just on the eastern side of the Mount of Olives. It would count is going to the Mount of Olives. But, but in either case, he didn't have a home. He didn't have any place to go. And I want you to think about home for a moment and don't take this lightly. Regardless of whether your home is large or, or small, home is a place of comfort. It's a place of familiarity. It's a place that has your favorite pillow, your favorite chair. It has the, the things where you feel safe. It's your base of operation where you can think and you can plan and you can relax and you can fellowship. I mean, when we go to, on vacation and we go to a hotel, what's the first thing my wife does? She tries to set it up like home. It's just our instinct. That home is where you wind down. It's where you get set for the next day. It's where you make memories. You cherish holidays and meals and love and, and laughter. But Jesus left his home. In fact, he did it twice. He left his earthly home with his parents in Nazareth, he left the family business, left everything that he was familiar with, And he left his heavenly home with his father in heaven. This is just ultimate irony to me that the one who made the heavens and the earth has to sleep in a borrowed bed with a borrowed blanket in a borrowed house. During his ministry, Jesus said in Matthew 8, 20, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. He didn't come as a rich man. He didn't come as a conquering king. He came first as a carpenter's boy 
And then he stepped down even from that to come to us as a wandering preacher, a man without a home, a man who didn't have a room to call his own. I mean, all of the things that he had in this world had to be divided up and torn because just, there wasn't enough. It was just a set of clothes is all he had. Why is this? John 1.11 says he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. His own people did not receive him. How would you feel if you knew that Christ was on earth and he was homeless? You would move out of your house and say, you can have mine. But they didn't do that. And look how humbly he acts with his people. There's no fanfare. There's no majestic entrances. I mean, the closest thing that Jesus ever does to a grand entrance is to ride a donkey toward Jerusalem. It's the closest thing he ever does. Hardly fitting for a king. And in verse two here, he sat down and began to teach. But his teaching is so powerful, so compelling that he draws a crowd just with his content. He's just talking. He's just explaining the word of God. Now, Jesus was recognized as a rabbi, as a teacher, but he was a teacher of the people. He didn't hold any position in the Jewish leadership system. He wasn't recognized by the authorities. He had no pedigree, no impressive training, no resume to speak of at all. And people ask him, what, you know, what's your background? I'm a carpenter. That's it. That's all he had. But what really strikes me is we confirm in Luke 21 that this is what Jesus was doing in the days before his arrest and his trial and his death. He's just faithfully preaching and teaching. I mean, you could literally count the number of hours before his suffering was going to start. And there he is, just being faithful. In fact, he's so comfortable, he's so unassuming that in a culture that did not not get excited about this, little children came and would jump on his lap. They were so comfortable with him. You didn't do that with the rabbi, but with Jesus you did. The weakest The most downcast in society flocked to him. The point is, if God's going to try to convince me to humble myself unto salvation, nothing could convince me more than God humbling himself to bring about my salvation. An ethereal, faraway, vague, distant, ambivalent God, that's difficult for us to have faith in a God like that. But the God who comes to earth just like me, I can relate to him. And he can bridge the gap between unholy me and holy God. How gracious Jesus Christ was that he, as Philippians 2 says, emptied himself, meaning he laid aside the glories and the privileges and the manifestations of deity by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. This is really hard to illustrate. It's hard to illustrate because it's not like Jesus was a wealthy man who decided to move to a bad neighborhood. I've heard that illustration. We get a little closer, maybe if we think of the the gracious condescension of Christ as a wealthy man who built a perfect neighborhood and then the residents messed it up and now the wealthy man reaches out by moving to the neighborhood fully knowing that they're going to murder him. Now we're getting a little bit closer. But really, any illustration falls short. I mean, how can we possibly grasp that the one that Isaiah saw in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne high and lifted up and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. And with two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. Then the house was filled with smoke that that one is homeless with no manifested glory. Uh, How could you grasp that the one pictured in Revelation 1 who is clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest, the hairs of his head are white like white wool, like snow. His eyes are like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace and his voice was like the roar of many waters that that one would own one cheap outfit and would have his feet get dusty like everyone else's. How can we possibly illustrate or grasp that the one Matthew 25, 31 says will come in all his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne is now pictured seated on the humble chair of a rabbi, of a teacher. 
how gracious Christ is to make himself available and accessible to us. Christ condescends to your life. He condescends to your life. There's a second gracious act that our text illustrates. Christ convicts you of sin. He convicts you of sin. Look with me at verse 3. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in the midst. They said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? First of all, it's highly unlikely that the Jews were still practicing death penalty for adultery. Almost certainly weren't doing that. Deuteronomy 22 prescribes the death penalty for adulterers, but Deuteronomy 24, two chapters later, seems to offer a more lenient option called divorce. Thus, God is just, but he's also merciful. And on top of that, the Jews were not permitted by the Romans to carry out executions on their own. Uh, These scribes who are experts in the law and the Pharisees, they're known for their strict loyalty to the law of Moses and, and more importantly, for their loyalty to their own oral traditions. But they came in hostility. They, They weren't asking for an opinion. They weren't asking for help. They came to test Jesus, to trap him. He's not a judge. He's not the authority. And so in verse six, this they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Now, there's an obvious element missing here. There's something missing. Listen to the laws that they're citing. Deuteronomy 22, verse 22, quote, If a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman, so you shall purge the evil from Israel. They're also citing Leviticus 20, verse 10. If a man commits adultery with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. What's missing? Or rather, who's missing? Where's the man? Where's this guy? The Pharisees claim to have caught the woman in the act. Last time I checked, that means he's there too. They arrested her. What did they do with him? Well, he wasn't the issue. They wanted to trap Jesus. Why were they bringing her to Jesus at all? He's not a judge. They had a court system. They were trying to make Jesus say something that they could use against him. And here's the trap that they're laying out. If Jesus says, no, don't stone her, he could be accused of disobeying or mishandling the law of Moses. But if he says, yes, stone her, not only does he destroy his reputation as a, as a forgiving and compassionate man toward the sinner, he would also essentially be agreeing to an illegal mob that would make him able to be arrested by Roman authorities for a legal reason. So they were trying to make him either defy Moses or defy Rome. Those are the only two options they gave him. You remember another time when the Pharisees tried to make Jesus either defy Moses or defy Rome? Matthew twenty-two seventeen. the Pharisees said to Jesus, tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? The very next verse tells us that Jesus knows that they came with malice. And so in what ironically is one of the most famous acts of Jesus in the text, almost certainly not inspired, he bent down and started writing on the ground. And this woman's life is literally hanging in the balance of what happens next. And her sin has been rightly publicly exposed. She's terrified. She's mortified. She may be moments away from a mob throwing stones at her, large rocks crashing into her body until enough crash into her her skull to make her succumb to her injuries. Now, a lot of ink has been spilled about what Jesus wrote on the ground. Here's one of the reasons this story is very likely true, because any author making up this story couldn't resist the temptation to fill in the blanks. But the text doesn't tell us. The most common theory is that Jesus was listing the sins of these Pharisees and scribes, or maybe more accurately listing the women they had sinned with themselves. But we don't know. It might be amusing to find out that Jesus was just drawing a cartoon to to pass the time. We don't know. And the Pharisees and the scribes, they persisted. Look at verse 7. And as they continued to ask him, in other words, they're repeating themselves, He stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Now the word for stand up here, it can mean that either he sat up, he straightened up, or he actually stood up. Probably in the context, he straightened up. 
Now, this is what's interesting to me. When he says, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone. Stories that are made up about Jesus, they, they tend to have either a mystical flavor or they just fall flat as human wisdom. And it's real obvious. And for example, the, the clearly uninspired disputed text of Matthew 16, verse 18, has Jesus ending his entire ministry Three and a half years of glorious ministry on earth, right before he ascends into heaven, what are the last words of Jesus on earth? According to Mark sixteen eighteen. by the way, anyone who believes in me won't be affected by snake bites, poison, or sickness. That doesn't sound like God wrote that. It sounds like Benny Hinn wrote that. The inspired text of Acts 1, 8 has Jesus saying this right before he ascends into heaven. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. That's an ending to a ministry. But what Jesus says to the Pharisees and to the scribes here, what he does is nothing short of profound, brilliant, and divine. This is not the invention of a human story. He tells them, whoever is without sin, throw the first stone at her. First of all, he did not deny the woman's guilt and he didn't deny that she deserves death. But second, he immediately expanded the law's power because they were implying that the law applied to her and he was saying, it applies to you too. Let's judge you. If we're gonna judge her, we're putting all of you on trial. By the way, Jesus wasn't saying that only a sinless person can carry out the law. Who's he speaking to? He's speaking to the Pharisees, the ones that in Matthew 19, Jesus exposed as mishandling Old Testament divorce law so that they could essentially legalize their own adultery. And by the way, he avoided any charge of breaking Roman law. He didn't say yes, he didn't say no. He just said, if you're not guilty, you throw the first stone. You start it. He exposed these men that they were unqualified to be her judge. They were unqualified to be her executioners because they themselves were steeped in the hypocritical guilt as being in an unsaved state. And look what these hypocrites did. They were instantly defeated. Verse nine, but they, when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. I want you to notice something here and, and we get all the way to this point to make our point. In other circumstances, Jesus is harsh. He excoriates, he rebukes the Pharisees and the scribes. But he doesn't do this this time. He makes this one simple statement and one by one they begin to go away. What's he doing? He's calling them to examine their hearts. He's giving them a chance. He's giving them an opportunity. The omniscient son of God who sees supernaturally the sins of all men He exposed their hearts. He cut them to the quick. And I want you to notice who left first. The older ones left first. I would surmise that they had more sins to remember. They had failed more. And ironically, the ones who just moments earlier had been trying to humiliate Jesus left humiliated. All of them thinking on the sins of which they were guilty. Now, they did, in fact, raise a good question, though. How does divine justice and divine mercy interact? How do those two interact? How can God be just and merciful at the same time? Ironically, the answer to that question was right before them. The answer to that question is in the person of Jesus Christ. Romans 8 verse 3 says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. In other words, keeping the law was never designed to be able to save. Romans 3, 24 and 25, we just read this. We are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. How can God pass over former sins? Not like Santa Claus who just winks at the bad kids. He passed over former sins because he knew at the cross payment was on the way. That's the only reason he would pass over it. God's wrath was satisfied. It was propitiated in Christ so that mercy could be given to us. The left hand of his fist of wrath was swinging towards you and the right hand of his mercy restrained it. 
both fully satisfied. Revelation 5 verse 9 says, They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. It was a ransom. It was a payment. This brilliant statement by Jesus is an act of mercy. He exposes hypocrisy, but at this point, he doesn't denounce them. He doesn't completely condemn them. He convicts them of sin and gives them the opportunity to ponder their own guilt. By the way, we know from Acts 15 that some of the Pharisees came to faith in Christ. Now, they continued to be troublemakers in the church, but they did come to faith in Christ. This is what Christ did through the Holy Spirit for you as well. At some point, your sin became so apparent to you that that you had no option but to run to the cross for forgiveness. Listen, if I could put it this way, if the Lord had not convicted you of your sin, he would have condemned you for your sin. And one by one, the Pharisees and the scribes leave here. The text isn't clear whether or not the crowd leaves as well, but John paints the picture of a very quiet moment now. The crisis has passed Jesus is left alone with the woman standing before him. A moment before, she'd been on the brink of being executed, and now she's standing there probably thinking, well, what do I do now? And the focus of the story gets boiled down to just two people, Jesus and the woman. And it brings us to the final gracious act of Christ, which gives you joy based in his love and in his character. He condescends to your life. He convicts you of sin. He cleanses you of guilt. He cleanses you of guilt. Now, all this time, Jesus was still seated. He was sitting down. He was still just hanging out with his people, teaching. He'd been stooped over, riding in the dust in the courtyard terrace of the temple. In verse 10, Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Jesus stood up. is a word that means he could have just straightened up could be that he he sat up from a stoop position or maybe he stood and he calls her woman that was considered a polite form of address like calling her ma'am he's being kind to her and in the absence of any other accusers jesus exercises his divine right and he forgives her and unlike her accusers he actually had the divine power the divine right the divine prerogative to forgive or to withhold forgiveness and he chooses to forgive But I want you to notice something. His forgiveness is predicated on something. It is predicated on her repentance. He didn't condemn her, but he didn't condone her sin either. Listen, her verdict wasn't just a get out of jail free card. There was an expectation of an immediate life change. There is the fact that the liberating work of Christ doesn't mean that he was just excusing sin. He was demanding an instant transformation of life. The woman before the throne of God was judicially exonerated. But there was the expectation of bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, the woman couldn't just skip through town and tell everyone she was forgiven. There were still people whose lives she had touched, perhaps marriages she had wrecked, that she had to make right. When Zacchaeus, the little sinful tax collector, when he repented, he told Jesus that he would return to all that he had defrauded four times over what he had defrauded. That's not just an I'm sorry. That's months of going back through his records and finding all the, the taxpayers that he had cheated and going back to them and making things right with them. Great sin demands great repentance. There was the expectation of great sorrow and horror at her own sin mixed with joy and relief or forgiveness from God. We see the correct attitude of humility in a very similar woman in Luke's gospel. And it's with great relief that we move from an uninspired text to an inspired text. So turn with me to Luke 7. Now we can all stop holding our breath. What's he going to say? Is it going to be heretical? Luke 7. It's a very familiar story to us. It's a story that demonstrates the obedient gratitude of a forgiven woman. And let's just refamiliarize ourselves with the story. Look with me at Luke 7, beginning in verse 36. Luke 7, beginning in verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table, 
in the Pharisee's house brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, I love it that Jesus can answer thoughts. Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. And he turned toward the woman Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who was forgiven little loves little. Now this scene, of course, indicts Simon the Pharisee who believes he had little or nothing of which to be forgiven. But I want to focus on the repentance of this woman. She was, in verse 37, a woman of the city who was a sinner. She was likely either a prostitute or a woman with a bad reputation for sexual immorality like the Samaritan woman of John 4. Apparently, she had either had a previous encounter with the Lord personally or she had simply heard his preaching and been convicted of her sin and pierced in her heart of her need for forgiveness. This meal would have been a a publicly viewed meal. It probably wasn't indoors. It was probably in the house, but in the courtyard of the house of of Simon. Um, People would sometimes come and stand outside the courtyard or even close to the table to listen to to the conversation. They didn't have Netflix or Amazon Prime, so this is what you did. You went to rich people's house and listened to what they talked about. Those at dinner would recline on low couches. They would be leaning on one arm with their head toward the table and your body going backwards away from the table stretched out. You would remove your sandals before reclining so that you didn't get the couches all dusty. And as a guest, it was customary to have someone wash the guest's dusty feet as they came in. But Simon had left Jesus' feet dusty. By the way, verse 49 says that there were other guests and ostensibly their feet got washed and Jesus was the only one left with dusty feet. It was to watch the commoner, Jesus, interact with the sophisticated Simon the Pharisee and I'm sure Simon thought he was gonna take this guy apart at his own dinner table. But there was a difference between the other guests at the table and Jesus. The other guests had been treated as honored And Jesus had been dishonored. What is the picture of repentance of this sexually immoral woman? This picture is stunning. I want to give you four parts to this picture of her repentance. First of all, it was humiliating repentance. It was humiliating repentance. Jewish women did not wear their hair down. They didn't wear it unbound in public. If I could put it this way, taking your hair down was what you did before you went into the bedroom with your husband. She had begun to weep while standing over Jesus' feet. She responded by taking her hair down and getting down at Jesus' dusty feet and, and wiping them. This wasn't her intention. She was just overcome. She must have been weeping significantly to have enough that she, tears that she needs to dry them. And this is right in front of everybody who's watching. Have you ever tried to cry quietly in front of people? It's hard to do. She's weeping, tears coming out and coming out and coming out. Listen, the last vestige of trying to hide her sin, the last vestige of trying to fake a pretend little righteous life, that's gone. It's gone. Everything's out in the open. Everyone knows who she is. Everyone knows why she's crying. And she also anointed Jesus' feet with ointment. It's perfumed oil. Normally you anointed somebody's head. To anoint the feet was degrading. It was humiliating. And she kissed his feet. The normal practice of a host was to kiss the cheeks of a guest coming in to show that they're welcome. She didn't rise to that level. She instead stayed down on the ground, bowed down in worship and kissed his feet. The second part to her repentance is stunning. 
Not only was it humiliating repentance, it was public repentance. She didn't whisper in Jesus' ear. She didn't say, could we have a moment to talk privately later? She didn't try to manage her repentance. She didn't try to do damage control for her destructive life. Instead, she wept publicly. She knelt to Christ publicly. She let anyone and everyone know that she was turning from her old life and turning instead to Christ. She didn't care who saw. She didn't care who knew. She just wanted to be at Jesus' feet and she was willing to do it publicly. She had no more concern for what people thought, no more pretensions. She wasn't trying to protect her reputation. She knew she had no reputation to protect. She wasn't hiding from those who knew the worst about her. It was all out in the open. But there's a third aspect of her repentance. It was emotional repentance. It was emotional repentance. In verse 38, it says she wept first. She was overcome with the emotion of, of having been forgiven. She didn't come to this dinner party saying, well, okay, I'm gonna play in here. I think I'll cry on Jesus' feet and wash him and make everybody think how humble I am. She was overcome with emotion. Why? Because her sins had been washed away. Her sins were so great that she could have been executed many times over according to Deuteronomy 22. And she's given a clean slate in the courtroom of heaven. Now, emotion does not prove that repentance is genuine. But her response to grace is clearly an indicator that she knew how heinous and filthy her sin had been. In fact, Jesus said why she was so emotional, that she had been forgiven much. There's a fourth part to her repentance. It was costly repentance. It was costly repentance. More than a year later, another woman would very similarly anoint Jesus' feet in Bethany with costly ointment. It was expensive. It was extravagant. The woman was giving her best to Jesus. She wasn't purchasing salvation. She was, she was yielding herself to his lordship, to his control. And it also cost her in terms of giving up her past. How do you think she paid for this perfume? She most likely paid for it with her sexual immorality. And she was pouring it away, just giving it away at the feet of Jesus. She was surrendering the last vestiges of her immorality and doing so for all to see. It was costly. Just two chapters later in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus would say, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. A lot of ink has been spilled over what does it mean to take up your cross. This is very simple. Put it in light in terms of the original reader, the original listener. When Jesus first said this to these people around him, he said this before going to the cross, before telling anyone except his own 12 that he was going to the cross. The only connotation, the only meaning of the cross that his listeners would have was that it was the instrument of execution that the Roman Empire used. In other words, this is what Jesus said. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, die and do what I say. That's costly repentance. Can you pay for your own salvation? No, but it does cost you everything. And what does Jesus say? Verse 48, and he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this? Who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. A gracious Christ cleanses her of guilt, the same gracious Christ who has cleansed you of guilt. When someone wonders whether or not she's repented, if you wonder whether or not you've repented, I can already tell you the answer is no. You haven't. If someone would prefer that repentance be managed instead of being humiliating, being unknown instead of being public, being stoic instead of emotional, and being free of lordship instead of costing you everything, then that puts you in the camp of Mark 8, 38, where Jesus says, whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Why do we baptize people publicly? Because it's humiliating. You get into a, 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 a big vat of water and you say, I'm dirty, I need to be cleaned. And you do it in front of everybody. You don't go to your pastor and say, I need to have a meeting with you and confess a couple things. It is costly. 
It is emotional. It is public. It is humiliating. And if you will not do that, Christ will be ashamed of you and you will not enter the kingdom. So my question is, have you washed the feet of Jesus with your tears? Has your sin been so heinous and so wicked and so evil to you that you're shocked that Christ would even think about forgiving you? If so, then he cleanses you graciously. Titus 3, 5, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. And we cling to 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to what? Cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Christ is so, so very gracious. And based in his graciousness, his merciful character, all the joy in heaven is available to you. It's all yours. Not given by any person, not given by any circumstance, but given solely by a right standing with the King of kings and the Lord of lords, our Savior Jesus Christ, the only source of joy. Our Father, we come to you having done our best to extol the name of Christ and certainly fallen short and failed in so many ways. We do thank you for preserving that text and uh, that story of uh, John 8 and wherever it's, it should go in the, in, the, in the narrative. We don't know and you've chosen not to tell us. But we thank you for that little peek into the life of Christ and into his graciousness and it is completely consistent with the rest of Scripture, completely theologically accurate and so profound that it seems very clearly uh, that Christ was speaking So, Lord, we thank you for that text. We thank you that it points us to other texts clearly inspired by you. And, Lord, we would pray for a woman among us who needs that forgiveness. We would pray for a man among us who may need that forgiveness. We would pray for any person here who has not repented, who has not washed the feet of Jesus with the tears of repentance, that this might be the moment, that today might be the day that they would repent, that they would humble themselves and they would humiliate themselves and bow down before the King of Kings and to acknowledge that we deserve only hell, only your justice, only your judgment, only your condemnation. But Lord, you're so gracious and you have sent Christ to save those who would have faith in him. And so we pray for all who are here that all would be in Christ We would pray for those who are in Christ but who tend to wander, who tend to not walk in the manner that's worthy of the gospel. I pray that you would convict their hearts, that you would discipline their lives such that they would walk in the manner that is pleasing to our Lord because he is our Lord and he did demand that we die to ourselves and that we follow him, that we obey him, that we do all that he asks. Might we be a people characterized by humble obedience thus be in the reflection of Christ. And it is in his name and for his glory that we pray. Amen.